0: This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies, as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts, so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part, Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing, with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Mallory Green. Mallory is the co-founder and CEO of Irene. Irene provides a modern and caring approach to cremation services. Arrangements can be made from the comfort of your home with the support of their funeral directors online or over the phone. In this episode, we discuss Mallory's days as an early employee at Simple, what inspired her to start Irene, and what it's like building a business in an emotionally charged space. Please enjoy my conversation with Mallory Green. Mallory I'd love to start with your time at Guelph. Um did you did you like university? Was that a good time there? And you know what did you study um when I you were at school? I'm
1: a 50/50 split on whether I liked university. I liked it for the fun and the parties. <laughs> I didn't necessarily love it for the studying and it was really it's like the first time you're a full adult with. um I'm very lucky that my parents actually paid for my education. So I didn't feel the total stress that a lot of people feel um, in terms of supporting themselves through that. Um, but there's obviously a, a lot more requirements of you when you go into university of, of eventually staying in your own place and laundry and all these things. So um, it, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I only did three years because by the third year, I was ready to to leave. Um, and I mean, I think we'll probably talk a lot about this. That timing led me to starting at Wealth Simple. So grateful that I did three years. I knew my limits and I left. Um, but I studied international development. So did not really prime me in any capacity to what I do today. I wanted to study something that I thought was very interesting. It uh, wasn't necessarily looking at what my future career path would be from that. Um, but it, it was a really interesting study because it it really opened me up to things that were happening around the world that I just wasn't aware of I grew up in a very small town called Aurora if you know Aurora because you live in Ontario um very white town and so I just like when I studied international development it opened me up to things that I just didn't know and I, I am very grateful for um yeah just what I learned in that process and how that's carried forward in my life.
2: So
0: you mentioned Well Simple there, and you you did three years university. Did you join Well Simple right away? and obviously you know well simple today twenty twenty three you know majority of Canadians know what that is, but what was the company yeah, like so at that time The story
1: goes that I graduated university and I could not get a job for the life of me. I had not done any co-op placements or any jobs. I was like a nanny one summer for five kids. Like I had just done really like random things. And so when I graduated and it was time to actually start applying to jobs, no one would hire me. Like absolutely no one. No one would even reply to my to my request. So um, I actually ended up over that summer interning a uh, very controversially a free internship um, for a nonprofit that had just started up. Um, and the person who founded that actually ended up joining Wealthsimple Um, in the fall of 2014 as their head of marketing. He had asked me to meet him downtown for coffee one day. And he said, I just joined this new startup called Wealth Simple. It's like an investment startup. Do you want to join as my marketing intern? And everyone in my life told me, do not take that job. Like, it's just so, it sounds sketchy. It's too much of a risk. You just need, you know, like a stable job at a bank or something like that. And I was like, I mean, my whole life, I've never listened to anything anyone says to me. So I was like, this is a great opportunity. I have nothing to lose. And so I took the job and I never interviewed for Well Simple. I just showed up on a Monday, um, which is funny because now as a founder, the, the founders gave me a really hard time when I first started. And now as a founder, I really understand why, because this random person that of their like startup baby shows up one day and is like hi i'm the marketing intern and um so i mean it 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 honestly once again it just kind of came down to the timing of my life of how i got to that point um and kind of just being able to take risks and and see what happens from that point but i mean my first few months there were like
3: pretty miserable to be honest
0: um can you describe a little bit about, like, wh- why those early earlier months were so difficult? Was it that kind of that transition from, I could only imagine going straight from university to, like, high growth startup with maybe, you know, nothing in between there? Like, it, was it kind of more of that, like, that context shift? Like, what were yeah, some difficult parts there? I mean, I think,
1: as I said, I had no work experience. And so jumping into a startup and i i I genuinely didn't even know what a startup was like no one had talked about that in school so i just went in so naive and i actually think that helped me (laughs) in a lot of capacities because i was like i'm just gonna do my best i'm gonna figure it out and kind of go with the flow but the expectations at the time at wealth simple they had they were launching like we had just done our launch party i think like a week or two after i started um And they had some capital and it was like time to grow like crazy. And so once again, I had no work experience. I had, and I was in marketing. I had no marketing experience. I hadn't studied marketing in school. And so I really like people used to say things to me, like using certain marketing language and and certain things. And I would just be like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I would go back to my desk and Google what they Like even like CAC, like, oh yeah, I know what CAC is. What do you mean? And then I'd go to my desk and Google. Google it. I'm like, what the heck are these people talking about? So I think it, it was it was a struggle because I just had no real life experience. And then you go into a startup and it's like you need to do everything and you need to work all the time and you're working with like really, really smart people. Um, I like I, I would leave crying. I would call my mom on my train back to Barry and I would be crying because I'd be like, why did I do this to myself? And it's funny because a really pivotal moment. I mean, maybe it's not funny, but a really pivotal moment is in the first two months, they fired the person who had hired me and they brought me into a room and they said, we have some really hard news. And I was like, oh, I'm getting fired. And they were like, we fired this person, but we want to offer you a full time job. And like I was just like, what is happening? Like, it just was such a roller coaster of a startup, Um, obviously had some incredible times and i'm so glad that i just stuck it out i mean i always believe that like the hardest things are the best things for you whether personally or professionally so it really primed me to grind through these early years of my own startup um but yeah no it's a world when anyone who's worked in startup knows it's just those early days when you're like less than 10 people you are just doing everything
2: so
0: you learned a lot about like you know putting that work in, you know, learning on the go. But what were some things that maybe, you know, well, simple has, you know, been a tremendous success so far? Um, What did you learn about, like, obviously a lot of things have gone right, whether, you know, like the timing, the product, you know, everything. So was that a really great learning experience that, like, the outcome has been successful? So you've seen, like, how things, you know, most likely should go?
1: think just like any experience you have you should understand what you would want to do again and what you would do differently um, and so when i went into starting my own business that was something that i wanted to approach differently like having really really clean finances because i know my own stress my own stress is just finances overall so i wanted to feel really confident knowing that when we raised those things would be in a really good spot so that was like one very specific example of um I think I also just learned a lot from the people side of what to do and what not to do. Um, how to, I think, I mean, fi- like hiring slow, firing fast and and when to know when someone's not a fit um, and just like culture, building culture. And I think actually I learned a lot about building culture at Wealthsimple. If I'm being somewhat cocky, I think I built the culture at Wealthsimple and I think my catcher would agree with me. Um, but I, I could kind of put I could bring that forward to my time at Irene as well. So, yeah, you, you just like anything you figure out, OK, I would I would do something differently or I would do that exact same. But absolutely, like Well Simple taught me so many valuable things about how to build a business and um, yeah, just like really get people to buy into what you're doing.
0: Can you touch a little bit more on culture? I feel like that's every startup is always talking about like, we have great culture, we have great culture. And obviously culture is is different at every single different company and what works at one doesn't always work at the other. But what are some things that worked specifically at mm-hmm. simple I mean, it's Wealth funny simple? because
1: when I look at the early days at Wealth Simple, we had so much fun, like maybe too much fun. Like we, I remember once we were like floor seat at the Drake concert and we went to a front row at the buffalo bills game like we but we worked together so much and i feel like we really built this community where we all became really good friends and actually two weeks ago i was at what we called a wealth simple og dinner um, with some of the kind of original people and in it like was so much nostalgia for me because it was such a special time and i honestly will never be able to duplicate that not even within my own business like it was kind of just the timing and the people and and we built something really special. And I do think that that initial group shake the rest of the company as we hired 100, 300 people that kind of we evolved and we had to change some things. Obviously, you can't get 300 people at a Drake concert, but uh, there was also things I think that we maintained. And when I look at like what's important from a culture perspective, I mean, you and I both know it's always people saying like ping pong tables and. Like, I don't know, after work drinks, like that, that shit doesn't matter. Like, it just doesn't. I think like for me, I look at it like psychological safety is really, really important at work. Um, And when a startup is moving so quickly and changing so often, I think it really prioritizing how to create psychological safety, just like people understanding expectations of them. Um, ensuring that you're really like validating people in their role and, and feeling like they're appreciated. Like, I think there's ways to build that when you're moving so quickly. So that's something I definitely carried forward. Um, but yeah, no, I, I generally just think that it is that it came down to the right people at the right time and we just had a lot of fun. Um, and then we knew when it was time to grow up. I think that's another really big thing. At a startup, you have a pivotal moment where it's like, we've just brought on a lot of funding. And now we need to scale back a little bit on the fun. Um, and so, yeah, you, I say that for my business this year. It's like the year that we're growing up. We, we haven't done Drake concerts or anything like that, but it just feels different. Um, so I, I am, I'm grateful for those past two years of my business. But now it's time to kind of change the tone a little bit.
0: I think you know there's always a focus on you know founders and they have to kind of grow with the business and there's been examples of like the business outgrows the founders for whatever reason but what about being like that early employee you start as a marketing intern you don't even know some of the you know terminology people are using um so how did you kind of keep keep up with that and ultimately you left well simple but like uh, what kind of different roles and teams did you yeah, work on I, at that I always time? Joke
1: that I touched every aspect of that business. Like my name was on our UK bank account because I set up our UK. Ba- like I was just doing everything, and um, I think that I established a name for myself, which was that I could just figure anything out, and I. That's like such an important trait of being in a startup. One in today's society, it's so easy to find out information. It's easy to learn, easy to discover information, and so. I remember one time Carney, who was the CTO at the time, said to me, like, you just know the answer to everything. And I was like, I know how to use Google. That's what I'm doing. Like By the time you asked me the question, you could have just probably Googled it yourself and would have got the exact same answer I had. right? So I was very, I just wanted to be able to do everything and like really show my abilities. Um. And so I think that was a big part of my success there. Like everyone felt they could lean on me for support and um, just general information. Also, I think you have to get rid of the ego that any ego that you have at a startup, like it's a very humbling experience. Um, so just, I guess, figuring out learning from people and, and being willing to learn and, and being willing to say, I don't know, sometimes like that's totally OK. Um, but yeah, no, I had various roles there. I started in marketing. I did that for about a year year and a half. And then I switched to HR and recruiting. Um, I did that for another year. And then I launched the Well Symbol Foundation. And as I said, between those times, I kind of had different little roles. But I would say my goal always, and I had always told my catch in this, my goal was to start my own business. And so I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. And he allowed me to do that. I I don't think every founder would, but he was like, sure, if you want to switch to HR and recruiting, try it out and see if you like it. Um, and so I mean, it was just such a unique opportunity that I had
0: So ultimately, you leave well simple. you spend a significant amount of time there through high growth stage. What was the reason for leaving? Were you looking to join something else? Had you been working on a business idea and you're like, "I need to do this? I guess like talk me through a little bit of that transition period hard, such
1: there. Such a hard transition period. Like I always felt. I could not picture myself leaving, but I knew there would be a moment, like there would be something that would be like, okay, it's time to leave. And so in my final year there, which was year four, um, I had met my co-founder and we had had a few conversations about building something together. And, but at the time I was like, I'm not ready to leave. I don't really have a reason to. And I, I think it was kind of like a, a variety of things, just generally feeling like after five years, which is a long time in startup world, I had tapped out everything I could learn from the people I was with. The company was changing. There was people leaving. Some of my closest friends were leaving. Like there were a lot of changes happening. Um, and then I had this idea. And I felt like at the time I was I was 25, I guess. And I was like, this is the best time to do it. This is the best time to jump, take the leap of faith and, and try to start my own thing. And if it doesn't work out, honestly, I could have gone back to wealth simple probably, or I could have there's plenty of other options for me, but. It just felt like, I remember having a day where I called my mom and I was like, I, I want you to know I'm quitting multiple. And she was just like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm going to give myself a week. I'm going to, and I always, this is my biggest piece of life, always sleep on decisions. So I gave myself a week. And if I still felt like that after a week, then it was time to leave. And so after a week, like, I was checked out I was like all right I'm ready to go uh and so I I sat down with Mike and I told him and I was like bawling my eyes out like it was a horrible experience but and he was like no you're not leaving like what do you mean you're not leaving and like to the point where I had to quit again I hope he's listening to this because I quit and he was like you're not leaving and then like a couple days later he's like so did you think about it I'm like my decision is still the same Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was really, really hard. And I remember like the first week after leaving, I gave them a month's notice. So I gave them a lot of notice. Um, and my first week after leaving, I was like, just felt so lost because I was just like, you need some time to really catch up with maybe a bit of your burnout. And then after a week, I was like, wow, I need some time off. So I took three months off, best decision, because I really didn't think I would, but um that five years of just like a rocket ship like really caught up with me and um I I mean you really grieve it too right you have to take the time to grieve that experience and and grieve kind of that loss because like I said I just genuinely think I can never replicate it but I am just so grateful
3: for it
2: so you, you took
0: that time off um is that where, Irene, did you come up with the idea during that time? Like you said, you had kind of met your co-founder already. So you're taking a bit of that time. I'm sure that helped improve the, like at least the initial start of the business because you're taking that time, reflecting and, and putting your more energy into it. Um, so I guess like what were those early steps? Why did you focus on, you know, yeah, what what well, Irene is so focused on right now? When
1: I officially left um, and my co-founder was still at the company, he was out at the time We didn't, we hadn't really drawn up what Irene was at that point. It was going to be in the funeral space. We knew that. Initially we thought, why don't we build software for funeral homes? Because a lot of them are very old school. They're using typewriters in some cases, like I'm not even kidding. Some of them are using typewriters. And so we were like, okay, why don't we build technology or tools? And as we kind of started building that, we recognized that like there's no reason for them to change the status quo. Like one, the sales cycle would be so, so long, especially in the funeral industry when they're not working with massive budgets by any means. Um, And 75% of them are independently owned. So they're like these local mom and pop shops. Um, But also like when I really thought about what, what do I want to build and why does it matter? For me, that was a consumer facing product. Like we're focused on providing affordable, accessible services to people. Um, not just like helping funeral homes make more money. And so that kind of evolved. Like I took that time off and I really just didn't even think about Irene. Like I took the two to three months off. My brother got married. I just like enjoyed my summer. It was a great time. I'm so grateful I did that because once you get into building a startup, like it's just nonstop. Um, and I mean, I haven't had a day off since, but uh no, and then I and then we we kind of started envisioning what it would be and built that over a few months. And then in January, uh, 2020, we applied for our license, which then went into a 10 month regulatory battle. Um, so after the summer, like we, we built it, we had the MVP and we were ready to go. And then we ended up having to wait almost another year.
0: What, what was that year like with the MVP, um, you know like what were you working on during that year were you were there things that you could still work on or was it kind of like a, I would say a, a little bit stop? of both
1: like we really worked on what the product was um and what the experience would be and i think like we really tried to keep ourselves as busy as possible the regulatory experience took up a lot of time because we were seeking out a lot of support whether legal or government or just like people within our network to figure out what to do because every couple weeks we were getting new information that was stopping us from launching the business. So um it, it really kind of like it did go by so quickly in in some way, but we we tried to just really um I think by the time we launched we didn't have an MVP. Like we had a really well built product. Um and so I mean it I'm grateful for it. And and it it taught me a lot about like the resilience you need to have in a regulated regulated industry. Um if I hadn't had that, I think I would have had a totally different approach over the past few years. Like we really had to fight for what we thought was right in, in our business itself. And so we kept ourselves as busy as possible. Definitely there was some time where it was like, well, we would have to wait, waiting for another response. But um, yeah, we, I think we really made the product as best as possible.
2: And
0: why the funeral space? Like, I know we had a previous conversation where you mentioned your, your family's in that space. Uh, I just think it's, it's so unique, right? Most people are, right. you know, fintech, crypto, like, kind of chasing those waves. Like, what brought you into this, like, very, yeah, very unique I'm space? Crazy,
1: by the way. Everyone's like, when I tell people that I'm building a funeral business, there's like, something wrong with you. Um, but, uh, why the funeral space? I mean, my dad's a funeral director. My mom is a hospice nurse. And so when I was at Wealth Simple, I was thinking about, okay, what would I build? It's not going to be in fintech, it's not going to be AI, any of those things. Like I I knew I needed to have a connection and like a really, um, I guess like some type of passion for it. Um, because it is so hard to build a business and you really have to have, like, you have to be able to wake up every day and fight for it because it's hard to run it. So um, I, I had two kind of moments. One is when I was at my grandfather's funeral. He had a very traditional funeral in a church, beautiful, exactly what he would have wanted. And I remember sitting there just thinking like, this is not what I would want, you know? Like, And, and I, it kind of just got me thinking, what do the next generation, like? I don't think a lot of millennials will be having those types of funerals. And so that sparked my interest and then I also was having conversations with my dad and my dad was speaking a lot to kind of, oh, well, uh, a customer came in today and they wanted a cremation. And like most funeral homes are not happy when you tell them that you they want that you want a cremation because it, it's just not they're not making as much money off of something like compared to a burial. Um, but if you look at the cremation rate, the cremation rate in Canada is 75 percent. So most families in Canada want cremations. They want accessibility and services because everything else is at our fingertips at this point in time. We can order food online, we can get an Uber, we can do whatever we want online and funeral services is still stuck. I mean, no shade, but like they're still stuck in like the 1900s. Like, so that I think it was like the affordability aspect, the accessibility aspect, and then, um, just recognizing that it is truly like one of the most difficult experience that families will go through and the process is not making it any easier. On them. I just think it's so unreasonable to think that you lose someone and the first thing you need to do is step away from your family, go sit with someone face to face and like fill out a bunch of paperwork, maybe be upsold on something. Like it just is not, it's such an archaic experience. And so I just think through conversation, I, I started to dig into what the industry is going to look like in the next 10 to 20 years and it's going to be drastically different.
3: Um, and so I wanted to be a part of that essentially.
0: And what was your kind of prediction or forward look, forward looking hypothesis on like where the space is going? You kind of mentioned there kind of what the current process is, and sounds very outdated and and um not fantastic for the for the the consumer there. So how did you, what were you envisioning, and like what has Irene kind of? Yeah, built I mean, for if that? you look at
1: the next ten, fifteen years in funeral services, a few things happening. Is one is like we have. Baby boomers were going to have the highest death rate of all time. Um, and if you look at the pandemic specifically, the funeral industry in North America could not sustain even pandemic numbers. So, generally, our current processes as an industry need to change. Like, they need to be more efficient. They need to be able to move people through quicker um, and support healthcare, also. I think that's a big component of it. Um, so, that was one thing. The second is that we are just generally as a society moving away from burial and that's for various reasons one in many places we don't have cemetery space left in the uk i know in london they said within 10 years there will be no cemetery space left in in london so generally like there are some things that are happening just like we don't have a choice but those things are going to happen and so rethinking how you memorialize whether some people are um recycling graves or some people are creating actual like structures um, for, for cemetery space because there are specific religions that only ch- allow burial obviously um, so there will that always will be existent but across North America in the next 10 years the cremation rate will be 80% so super super high um, and uh, I think generally like I I I look at it from a perspective of we do everything else very uniquely in life like if you think about like parties and weddings and everything is like reflecting who you are as a person. But for some reason funerals have always been very cookie cutter. It's like this is how to properly grieve. This is how you memorialize people and it should be $20,000 in a, a full service but burial. And that's it. And I just I just genuinely don't believe that. I believe that it's up to individuals to decide what reflects them the best. Um and so I think we're we're definitely moving more towards like flexibility and more of a unique way to memorialize people. And so how that fits into Irene, one is that when you choose a, a direct cremation, which is what we offer, direct cremation or direct aquamation, which we can probably talk about, uh, that allows you, like you make the decision quickly whether you want a burial or a cremation or aquamation That has to happen really quickly. And then from that point forward, if you choose something like a direct cremation, you have all of the flexibility to decide when you memorialize that person, how you memorialize the person. It just gives you more time um and obviously with people kind of widespread now that's that I think a lot of people appreciate that like we don't all live and die where we grow up like we have families widespread and friends and so it just gives you more time and so that's why we offer direct cremation specifically it's to give people that flexibility and like the tools to then decide how they want to memorialize we don't have anything we don't have any part of that um we're not in the world of of planning events but we are in the in really focused on providing education for people on like okay here's all the really interesting things you can do you can send someone space you can put ashes in in a record you can turn it into a diamond like there's so many interesting things that can happen that as I said reflect that person uh, the second I think is on the accessibility component so instead of this idea of your loved one dies you have to leave the hospital and go sit and do all this paperwork that's very repetitive and and be told that your loved one deserves a $10,000 casket. Irene is just like, this is our price. We've included absolutely everything you would need if direct cremation is what's for you. Give us information once and then go back to being with your loved ones. And I think that's just so critical during that time because it is so burdensome and painful for a lot of families. So we want to alleviate a lot of the stress that's often involved in that arrangement process and just make it digital. I would always like to clarify though, Families can still interact with us on the phone. We are a tech business, but we still have humans. We have licensed funeral directors and you can make the arrangement entirely on the phone or you can do it self-serve. So you can do it on our website and you enter the information, you sign the contract and you pay and you don't have to ever speak to someone. I always like to illustrate, like when I have to call Bell about something they've done wrong with my phone, it's like the absolute worst part of my year. I, like I don't want to do that. And so we have a lot of families who do it self-serve. They're, they're confident in what we provide. They've seen our reviews. Um, and then we have people who want a bit more support and, and that's totally fine. We're, we're happy to meet people where they are. And then I think, as I said, like the affordability component is a big piece of it. Um, we believe you can have really high quality deaf care that still provides absolutely everything you need, but it doesn't have to break the bank. And the reality is, is most people haven't thought or planned for deaf. And when they get the bill, they are very often shocked by how much it costs um for illustrative purposes that cost the average cost of cremation in canada is about five six thousand dollars and irene charges twenty five hundred dollars plus tax so we're about half the cost um and it's just because we don't have the same overhead that a traditional funeral home would
2: um
0: <clears throat> you talked about uh aquamation there <laughs> i'm I'm not super familiar with that. What what is that? So How is So, offalmation
1: is a sustainable alternative to a flame based cremation. So, aquamation is water based. Basically, it is uh, kind of like a metal vessel, ninety five percent water, five percent lye. And what would happen if you were um if if you were buried naturally, like over time, it's just sped up. So, it's sped up over about three to four hours. Um, You get remains back basically the exact same from cremated remains, except for they're white instead of gray. And it's just way better for the environment. I'm actually kind of limited on what I can say because of regulatory purposes, which uh, we can have a whole conversation about that. But um, what I can say is that it has no emissions and um, it uses less water that a household does in a single day. So just a more sustainable option if you look at the u.s and kind of globally that's what the industry is definitely moving towards the impact of burials and cremation is quite high and i think as generations change our priorities will change on what we accept i've personally pre-planned my aquamation just like the idea of like a gentle flow of water and and I've, i've witnessed it myself so i think it's really nice you can be wrapped in silk if you want um so it 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 ultimately a personal preference but as i said sustainable options are becoming more um common in in the u.s there's something called uh natural organic reduction which is essentially human composting that's what they call it
3: um but once again just illustrates there's there's different options available
2: How has it been building in this space?
0: Because you know, I think a lot of people, like you said, they're not planning yeah. to die. Yeah. Like people just are thinking about living twenty four seven. So, how do you kind of approach that? Like the the cost savings you just mentioned there versus you know, you're even saying some people are paying ten thousand yeah. dollars just for a casket. So, to me, it seems like kind of a no brainer from like a cost perspective. But I guess like kind of the broader question there is like what's it like been building in a business in a space where there is a lot of emotions, maybe like extremely limited education, because you're probably yes, doing this exactly. what once, yes. twice, you know? Um, so can you just no, touch a bit really more on that, it's I guess?
1: Because the very beginning of your sentence, the reaction I always get when I tell people about my business is they say, oh, well, I hope I never have to use your services. And I always say, well, like, and like, sorry to be the party cooper, but everyone dies. <laughs> oh, so you're going to have to use my services at one point. Sorry to break that to you. Um, but it is always the upfront. I think people are very uncomfortable with death. And I understand it. It, it Like you said, it's a very stressful, horrible time. Um, and But we all have to, we, it's a universal experience and we all have to acknowledge it, whether it's our own mortality or others around us. That's just, that's the reality of life. Um, so how is it building in this, space it's very interesting because essentially what we're trying to do is tell people what their needs are before they even know what their needs are you know what I mean it's like they they have no previous experience someone dies in a hospital they go to google and they click our ad because they're just clicking they're just like I don't even want to do this I'm just gonna click the first thing I see so they then we're trying to really showcase everything that they need to think about on our home page and you're also not I've always been very focused on not saying negative things on our website about like, oh, well, we don't do this or we don't do that. Like, I want to be like, these are what your needs are. And this is why so many families choose to use our services. So it is, it's like predicting people's needs once again, before they even have them. Um, And then you have a very short time. They call you oftentimes. You have a very short time to convince them that they should trust you with their loved one. Um, and so, I mean, that comes down to customer service. I, I firmly believe we have the best people in the industry um, and we'll continue to hire the best. If you look at all of our reviews, they are about our licensed funeral directors. Like they'll say, oh yeah, it's a simple process. I appreciated the price, but it's like, wow, the person who answered the phone was compassionate, but they were clear. And like, that's exactly what I needed at that time. So it's, there's an article I remember in, I think it was in Forbes and it was talking about um, marketing to stress customers because it is such a unique, I would call it like a buying experience. Right. Um, they often say that grief is very similar to being under the influence of alcohol. So it's very hard to make decisions. Um, but what we've done is just like, we listen to every single phone call that comes through. We look at all of our chats and our emails and the common questions we're getting. We figure out how to clarify that on our website. Um, There's something that we often find is like, families will say, okay, I need to now go present this Irene to my family. So we created a one pager that says, how to talk to your family about Irene. Like you just really are basically leading people to that decision. Um, I think there's a lot of parts of the industry that do our job for us, to be honest. Um, So as long as you're compassionate and you answer the phone And you can clearly demonstrate why you have the best value. I think generally families appreciate that. And I think, yeah, transparency is just so key in this capacity because it just does not exist in the industry. I shouldn't say does not. I don't want to get in trouble.
0: (laughs) And you mentioned some regulatory. (laughs) And and you mentioned regulatory a little bit um, earlier Um, Again, something I'm not familiar with like is there a lot of regulations around like I feel like there shouldn't be but like like how regulated yeah, is the space so
1: the regulations themselves are not that complex the difficulty is that in certain province the people who license us work in or own funeral home so there can be from my experience bias in the licensing process Um, And in some cases, like in some provinces, we pay fees based on our call volume. So if you think about um, the large corporates who are doing the most amount of cremations or burials, they are funding the organizations who license all of us and, and kind of regulate us. Right. So there is questionable things happening within regulation. Um, it's not the case in every province. In some province, the actual minister's office, uh, like a consumer protection type office will, will, um, mandate. And as long as you meet their requirements, that's on their application, then you're good to go. In, um, Alberta, we have been, the nicest word to use is fighting for over a year. We've spent a lot of money to get into that province. Um, and that's a continued process. So, and once again, the people licensing are working in funeral homes. So there have to be changes that occur. Uh, I think it's unfortunate because I think consumers just deser- deserve options, but that's a big cause, in my opinion, of why there's no options that currently exist. Um, and yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a very heavily regulated in the sense of protection protectionism. It's not super complex legislation. In fact, a lot of the legislation is very old I'm often the first time I speak to government, whether I speak to the premier's office or the minister's office to talk about our licensing. They don't know anything about that specific area within kind of under their umbrella. Um, When I spoke to I spoke to the licensing people in PEI This was last year and the response I got was I haven't licensed a new funeral home in 20 years. So I actually don't know what the licensing process is, which is just like shocking. But I mean, it's a it's a bigger conversation about regulation in innovation in canada right if we talk about going into the us because the barriers to entry in all of those states are just way lower they're reasonable i would just say they're reasonable barriers to entry you still need to be professional and licensed and all of these things but there's no bias involved and so i mean i i I think it's important to say that as a business we're not we will not be licensed in every Canadian province because of the regulatory environment but we will go into the U.S. because it's
3: just a lot easier.
0: And has that been a main focus for you like growing into the U.S.? um, How is that going? I guess like you know like what are main ways that you know you said people like you know if a loved one passed away you know, there's, you know, probably a quick Google search because no one is is ready for this or no one's there. So is that like a really big channel for you? And it's just like customer awareness. And, you know, once they're on your website, education, and this is what you should um, be doing
1: in terms of the US. I mean, it's just such a massive market opportunity. And because we've gone through the regulatory processes in Canada, we understand it's not like I said, it's a bit easier, but it's not that different. And so our model really remains the same no matter where we are in North America, which makes it to some capacity easier for us to, to grow. Um, they're also, I think a big decision of the U.S. is there's really no one doing what we're doing right now. Uh, there's been a few that have come and gone, although I think their focus has been more so on lowest cost possible. And that's never been our focus at Irene. Our, our We're like that middleman, like we're not the lowest cost and so we're not the highest cost. We provide really great services, but at an affordable price, but it's still valued at what it should be. So, I think that's kind of the two decision factors: is like how uh, straightforward is it for us to get into new markets, um, and does that, is anyone doing it really well currently? I don't think so. So, um, <laughs> so those are kind of the decision on in the U.S. And like I said, it's just a massive market, so it it, it makes a lot of sense. Also, our investors expect it, so that's a, another component of it. And then in terms right. of how families today find our services i mean as i said the reality is, is most people aren't thinking or planning so when it when the time comes that they need services they will either go to someone kind of in the end of life realm so either at the hospital there's like a social worker or there's a chaplain um or the hospice has lists or or but because in canada obviously public health care there can be no buying so i could i couldn't partner with the hospice and they send me business um So it has to be very hands-off in that capacity, which really leaves the decision in the consumer's hand and they have to do all the research and and kind of legwork. And so what we find is most people do go to Google or they will ask their network. And so there's like two main channels we focus on is digital marketing, Facebook, Bing uh, and Google. And we've tried different things otherwise like out of home and, and other things, but those are the easiest formula for us currently in terms of customer acquisition. And then the second half of it is just referrals. Like, it's funny when I talk to some investors in the past, they'll say like, well, you don't have repeat customers. And we've had some families who come back to us like two to three times already. And we've been in business for two years. So I've always felt if you provide really great services, whether they come back to you or they refer everyone in their network, because it is such a personal decision, like that's what's going to happen there will be repeat customers and we're happy to to support them through that so those are kind of the two channels right now i think long term irene's goal is to build a brand that people know and they think of because that just doesn't that doesn't exist in funeral services you don't just like think of a a funeral brand and and that's what i want irene to be so whether someone's thinking about pre-planning or a death is occurring soon, or a death occurs, like we are top of mind for them, and they know that we are the best option for them. So that's, I think, more of like a larger marketing brand play, and we'll get there. But um, as of right now, I think we just kind of have like a, it's like a halo effect happening where people are hearing about us, and and we have all five-star reviews, and it's just, it's slowly building
3: out.
0: I love that. Um, I'd love to switch gears into the quick fire round and, uh, would love to know what your favorite book is or maybe one that you're just kind of reading right now. Because
1: I don't read a lot of books and my business coach, uh, said it's okay because she's like, you're using your brain so much that like the thought of (laughs) reading a book sometimes is just like too much for me. I need to watch like trash TV. However, I did actually read a book, uh, two months ago called 4,000 weeks and I believe it's a Canadian author. Author. I don't know his name. Um, and basically, it was an anti productivity book. So, what he's basically saying is, you are like, we have 4,000 weeks if we're lucky. And that a lot of the things, it's like, how to all about life is like, how do you create efficiencies in every aspect of your life? But then in some ca- cases, you're basically then missing out on the point of life, right? Like, if you get a cleaning lady and a cook and someone to pick up your dog's clue or whatever it is like you end up just like the point of life is actually to like go through it and so i i liked it because sometimes i do get so and i think a lot of founders would agree like sometimes you just get so in your own head about i'm not working enough even though i'm working like 12 hours a day seven days a week like i didn't do enough today whatever it is and so i liked the book because it just chilled me out i think i need to read it every three months but um it was good because he's like, you're going to work hard and you're going to pick the things that you really care about and do your best at that. And sometimes you're going to have to just let things go. Um, and so it, it was a really interesting book in that capacity. Otherwise, I read like blankest and I read like the five, the five minute books. Because I mean, if I'm being this is maybe a, a, a controversial opinion. A lot of books have so much fluff and like I just don't really have time for fluff. But this 4000 weeks was very good. So read it.
0: I, I like that about the the fluff and I've I've learned recently too I always felt like I had to complete yes. a book and now if like I just will yeah. flip through I'm yeah. just like this chapter I, yeah. I can't I can't do it. My co-founder gets mad at I me because I on also it, flip so. through
1: movies. Like sometimes I start watching it and I'm like I do not like this movie but I need to know what happens so I just go to the end. <laughs> Sufficient.
3: Yeah.
0: I like that. Um, what are you most excited about this year? Um, whether personal and or professional?
1: So personal, I don't really have a lot going on, to be honest, but I'm okay with that. And I'm just like in my zone right now. And and I'm focused on professional. Uh, I'm going to be 30 actually in two weeks. So I'm sure I'll celebrate that at one point. Uh, I don't feel 30, which is weird. And I don't feel 30 until I talk to a 21 year old and I'm like, oh my God, I am 30. But uh, yeah, I'll celebrate my birthday. And otherwise I don't really have any massive things planned professionally i mean i just feel like irene like we've i feel like in the past six months we've really found our footing we're finally able able to hire really awesome people uh we're growing like crazy month over month and then going into the u.s i just think will be such an exciting challenge like i just like to be constantly challenged so um no i just think i think like, this is the year for irene for sure not to say it won't come with a lot of hurdles and, and struggles, but, um, you know, I just, I try to wake up every day with a fresh mind and,
3: and, uh, tackle it as best as I can.
0: Um, you know, that, that you, you were early at Well Simple, you know, challenging time building that business and you jump right into your own business and you mentioned, you know, taking some time off was really good for you. So how do you deal with hard times? Are there specific things that you do that uh, kind of help you out? I'm
1: not here to tell anyone like I meditate or anything like that. Maybe I need to meditate, but uh, I, uh, one part of it is I have someone one. Okay. I'll start here. My co-founder and I have like the most incredible relationship. And so I think having that person that is like super supportive, um, understands everything you're going through has been so crucial and, and, it's hard to come by, but if it works, it works. And so I think having a good co-founder relationship is very helpful to me. Um, We just have each other's back. Second is I always say my mom is my chief emotional officer, um, which is like, if I'm having a bad day, just like call her and vent. And then we call it, we call it a day and that's it. So I think having someone maybe removed from, from um, your work is important, but who still understands what you do uh, to some capacity. And then The one thing that I just like am really, I would say more so in the last year is when I feel like tapped out by 6, 7 p.m. And and sometimes I work later. But if I'm tapped out, I'm tapped out like and I will just go to bed and I will, like I said, start again the next day. And because ultimately you have to know your limits. And and if you just keep pushing and not listening to that, you're going to get in a, a total state of burnout. So. I think that's like, for me, the biggest things. Um, last thing I'll just say is, like I said, right now I'm in a zone. I'm not always in a zone. And so I just kind of ride, ride it out. Some days I'm like, this is not my day. I'm just going to do very like low admin work, like just something super easy. And then some days I'm like spit firing ideas like I'm Elon Musk. I mean, actually, maybe I shouldn't say Elon Musk. I think he's canceled, but, uh, you know, just like so and really cool. I don't know who's really cool, but anyways, yeah, no, it's, I think for me, it's like, just, it's, it's like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So just go with the flow of it and, and listen to your body. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think that's going to evolve over time. Like I said, though, I'm not the, um, there's a point of wealth that people get to where they're like, I get up at 4am and work out and meditate. And like, I'm not there yet. I'm still like waking up like, holy crap. (laughs) maybe I'll get there I'll be one of those
3: people eventually
2: I'm
0: always skeptical of those crazy routines I like people that are a bit more straightforward and honest with you know I saw like Mark Andreessen from A16Z tweeted the other day that he wakes up like three minutes before his first zoom meeting I'm like that's that's real
1: that's the thing like I'm like five minutes before my meetings today I was like still in my pajamas yeah no, I. Some people do get to a level of wealth where they are not in touch with reality, but um, like I said, it's evolving. You kind of learn as you go what works for you, and as your business changes, that what works for you also changes. So one thing, a few things I do do though is like I have the exact same outfit that I wear every day. I understand decision fatigue is a a real thing, so if I just know what I'm going to wear, that really helps. And then I also have the exact same breakfast every morning because once again, I don't want to make a decision. So.
3: Those are two little things, but easy to do.
2: I love
0: that. Um, I'd like to open up the floor to you just to, you know, how can people learn about Irene? How can they, you know, get in touch with your team, yeah, whatever so that may Yeah, Irene
1: be. is Irene.ca. Often people are like, how do, you, how do you say it? How do you spell it? It's E-I-R-E-N-E. Irene means a state of peace, so that I always like to clarify. That's exactly what we want our families to feel when they interact with our services state of peace we can be their peace during a very difficult time um so i it's irene on all platforms instagram twitter facebook um otherwise for myself i'm also on linkedin twitter instagram uh mallory j green green with an e on the end not really using twitter as much anymore because i feel like it's going downhill Although LinkedIn is, I think LinkedIn's having its moment. So find me on LinkedIn or Instagram and uh, always happy to connect with other founders and support other people as they go through this journey.
2: Awesome. Mallory, this has been a lot of fun.
0: Appreciate you coming thanks on. So and much for having me. Yeah. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.